10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host Ryan Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to say, make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, and to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns began in 1993 with support from University of Maine Cooperative Extension. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine, and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. One of the great things about Maine in August has to be blueberries. Whether you pick them yourself, buy fresh berries at a farmer's market or grocery store, or purchase a box for the freezer, we love our berries. And today I'm really happy to welcome Dave Yarborough, um, who's the blueberry specialist at the University of Maine Cooperative Extension, back to our, our program. Welcome, Dave. Thank you, Ryan. Glad Pleased to have to you here. with us. Yep. And uh, um, having worked for Cooperative Extension all these years, it's fun to have a colleague come back and, and talk about something that they're passionate about, in this case, blueberries. Yes, I am. It's great to be here, too. And you've had a career of, of looking at berries. You were um, talking about um, starting as a, um, a research assistant uh, out in the fields. Um, how did your career kind of develop? You went on for education after that? Well, uh Basically, I started as a summer job uh, uh-huh. as a student at the university and uh, went out in blueberry fields and uh, we were raking some berries and I measured out the uh, the amounts to two decimal places and the professor said, do you want an assistantship? And so <laughs> at that point, I had graduated in wildlife and was looking for other career options and since then, I've kind of gone on. I got my master's at UMaine and uh, was a research uh, Assistant for 12 years doing uh, research in, in weeds and blueberries. Uh, at that point in time, I went to UMass, took a sabbatical to get my Ph.D., and when the job for blueberry specialist came up, I was ready for it, mm-hmm. and uh, I got it. And and has uh, that that notion of being a research assistant in the fields, um, did you think that you were going to have a career at blueberries at that point? Well, you never know. You know, I kind of stumbled into blueberries, but once I got there, I just loved it so much, and it was a, it's a challenge. It's, it's a very unique crop. Uh, managing a wild crop, really, and, and doing a really good job of it isn't really done anywhere in the world except mm-hmm. for Maine and Atlantic Canada. Quebec. And what are the, the kind of underlying, I, I suppose, geologic conditions that lead to our ability to have a wild blueberry um, crop? Well, basically, it starts uh, about uh, 12,000 years ago, uh-huh. glacier, uh-huh. and that uh, scraped all of the soil off into, into the bay for the lobsters that uh, have some nice food out there. But, you know, when it receded, uh, it just ground up the rocks, and there was just a sandy layer that was very droughty, and and, and there weren't any blueberries there. And, I, you know, I, I talked to kids and I said, well, how'd they get there? Did they walk? Did uh-huh. they fly? Right. Did they swim? And actually they, they walked uh, with bears. Uh, they put a nice uh, f- fertilizer packet uh, when they uh-huh. deposit the berries out there and birds. Uh-huh. So uh, they were able to establish themselves. 
in this environment. And, and the other thing that's really unique about blueberries, they have this uh, symbiotic relationship with the fungi. You think they get infected. You say, well, infection's bad. But this, this infection provides an extension of the roots of, of the blueberry plant to uh, absorb minerals that aren't, aren't available. And the plant itself supplies uh, the fungi with uh, sugars. So with this uh, with this relationship uh, uh, that's beneficial to both plant uh, and fungi, the blueberries were able to establish themselves where other plants couldn't. Mm. So, so soil conditions, the glacier um, led to the, the this kind of um, magic combination, and you say this is probably the one of the few spots in the in the world. Right, it's a it, it's a combination of geology and climate. Climate is the other other key issue. You know, our temperate climate uh, with the the snows in the winter to cover the plants mm-hmm. and. Uh, and and uh, you know it's uh, the the way the the blueberry spreads instead of growing up it grows out uh, an underground stem called a rhizome and spreads and so it's able to hunker down under the snow with with mm. those cold winters that we used to have and survive so it was very well adapted to to the environment in the northeast mm-hmm. uh, so uh, relative to the cultivated blueberry the high bush type or regular blueberries are found really f- further south. We do have some wild plants in Maine right along the edges of the lakes where it's, uh, it's a little bit more uh, sheltered. Uh-huh. So when did humans start to, to have um, an interest in berries? I suppose Native Americans were probably um, using berries as part of their diet. Yes. Uh, yeah. In fact, they used it as an early preservative. They took the, the berries in and uh, uh, combined it with meat called pemmican. And the, and that uh, dry product uh, helped help them get through the winter. So, mm. and 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 they were actually using part of the antioxidant properties of the blueberries themselves. Didn't know it, but also you know the vitamins and and uh, antioxidants. Uh, combined with the meat, gave them a very good source of protein and uh, to, to get them through the winters. And so th- this this allowed them to survive as well. So, it's, yeah, it's got a history of as soon as man got here, well, the animals had it first, actually. Sure, sure. <laughs> but, and when do we when do we realize that antioxidants were an important part of the kind of the blueberries um, up, um, benefit to humans? Well, there, there was some research uh, done back in the uh, 80s. Uh, uh, Professor Ron Pryor, Tufts University, looked at the uh, the anthocyanins and the, the antioxidants effects, and they they determined these uh, particular uh, phytonutrients uh, were effective in. Uh, Curbing some of the free, what we call free radical. These are charged, mo- uh, charged oxygen molecules that, that pollution or even even metabolism produces in our bodies. And these are very uh, bioreactive. They uh, affect your DNA, cause aging, and and we found that these uh, anthocyanin pigments uh, were able to quench quench these uh, free radicals and uh, kind of neutralize them. And so uh, this this gave us a, a, a health benefit uh, that the plant had uh, conferred on itself uh, to protect it against sunlight, uh, but now uh, we're able to eat that uh, berry and get that same uh, same beneficial effect. Mm. So when did the blueberry industry, as we kind of know it in the in the modern day, when did that begun, begin to arise and what was its development? Well, basically, when the colonial expansion came in, uh, they were harvesting trees uh, basically for the, for the uh, shipbuilding industry. We had a huge mm-hmm. uh, shipbuilding industry along the coast of Maine. And as they opened up uh, those uh, forests, the bluebirds actually were in the understory. Uh, they had come in first, and the forest overgrew, but 
blueberries are really great survivors. So they mm. kind of hunkered on down in the shade, and whenever there was a blowdown or an opening, they could flourish, mm-hmm. uh, or whenever the forests were burned over over time. So they were still there. So the clearing and opening uh, of the forest really increased the amount of blueberries, and people – uh, the colonial people recognized that that was a resource, and uh, they went out and they just used to, you know, uh, take their buckboards out and mm-hmm. buckets and mm-hmm. spend a camp out there and pick blueberries, and then they bring them back in. And uh, a lot of these were sold fresh market, the little uh, uh, wooden shaker uh, pints uh, that they had. They'd put them on the on the on the ships and ship them down to Boston. So that was really the beginning of the industry was free pick, but then. One of the, uh, a lawyer actually bought uh, thousands of acres of lands, and then he started charging uh, a stumpage fee. Okay. So that that really started the the industry, uh, commercial industry, and then when they uh, and that was approximately when, the eighteen hundreds. Yes. Yeah. 1800s. Yeah. Around eighteen eighteen fifties forties. In fact, yep. uh, they were uh, shipping blueberries by rail out of here uh, mm-hmm. then as well. Okay. Uh, that that point in time. So at that point, um, blueberries, like so many other things, Maine was a breadbasket for um, this part of the world and, and we're able to ship in this case fresh berries to places like Boston. That's correct. Yep. Mm. Yeah. And, and then when the new science of canning came along, okay. you know, the turn of the century, then then uh, there were up to 50 canneries in Maine. Okay. And they would put labels on it, you know, Rocky Mountain blueberries and, you know, from Maine. <laughs> they, they'd, they'd pay to have their labels on the cans and they were shipped uh, essentially all over the country in the 50s. Maine was the number one grower of blueberries in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I suppose after that original fellow um, decided that he was going to charge for um, people harvesting berries, um, that became the model, um, and that persists to, d- to today? Well, there's uh, it, more ownership now. The, the industry itself, uh, we have about uh, 500 small growers, and they're scattered throughout the state, mm-hmm. uh, and, and they have really small acreage, probably mostly under 10 acres, 50 acres, then there might be uh, a few people, uh, maybe a dozen people that have a few hundred acres. And then there's six grower processors. All of the land in Maine, uh, are, are well, half, about half the land in Maine is is owned by the processors who are family farms. They okay. started as a family farm, right. and they still are family, although they're incorporated, they're still family operations. There's no, no corporate, no outside funding a corporation's own blueberries in Maine. So they're um, harvesting on their own lands, and they've got um, harvesters that they pay to do that. And then the small <clears throat> growers, um, then they they basically sell their berries to these processors. Is that how it has worked? That's how it's worked, and that's how it's still working. There mm-hmm. is a small fresh pack. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, maybe uh, 1% or 2% of the berries go fresh pack. Uh, but principally, uh, our, our main wild blueberry is an ingredient. Mm-hmm. So it's picked and within 24 hours, flash frozen, stored in large bins, and then it's reallocated into 30-pound boxes for the, the food service industry or or two- or three-pound bags. Wyman says uh, retail bags now mm-hmm. for the blueberries. But, um, so those are the, the, the ones that are showing up in supermarkets. That's um, correct. They've been the through that process, but they've been frozen, and then they're available to consumers in, in, that, in that form. And that's, that's really just a recent – uh, right. Development past ten years uh, up to the nineteen seventies, we're producing about twenty million pounds of blueberries, and really the the, the food service market used all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we uh, doubled the uh, the crop in the seventies, uh, and uh, with that doubling, uh, then they had to find new uses for the blueberries, and we've continued to increase the crop up to about a hundred million pounds a year <laughs> wow. now. So we've about a five five fold increase. 
And we've done that by uh, not by adding acres, but by improving management. We had back in the 70s 60,000 acres. Now we have 44,000 acres. So we're doing a lot more with a lot less, mm. uh, which is what's required. Uh, sure. So what are some of the, the techniques, of, again, research um, at the university and, and elsewhere would um, lead to these improved techniques for growing and managing um, berries? What are some of the things that are the, the innovations? Well, the first critical innovation is really, uh, as any gardener knows, controlling the weeds is critical. Okay. Uh, you know, we can, you can go from 5,000 pounds an acre to 1,000 pounds an acre as you increase the density of weeds. So weeds are really a major limiting factor. And, and we had some uh, um, some uh, herbicides that were able to selectively control the weeds in the 70s, and mm-hmm. that really started the process. Uh, after that point, we could look at adding fertilizers to increase the productivity. If you added fertilizers prior to that, you just grow more weeds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then as we had a larger, uh, more healthy plant, we have more flowers, and then our native pollinators, which uh, had been adequate up to that point, we needed to bring in more pollinators to get that crop. So the added pollination and then certainly uh, uh, monitoring and protecting from uh, insects and diseases was another critical uh, part of, of the equation. And the final piece really is irrigation. Uh, okay. given, given our uh, uneven precipitation that we're having now, especially now we're really in a, in a stress situation. There's been a lot of investment, especially with the larger uh, farms uh, down east to uh, have in-ground irrigation systems to add that inch a week. We need... Essentially, like most crops, one inch a week, uh, our soils uh, down east only hold about a half inch. Right. So if we got a half inch uh, uh, twice a week, perfect. Right. Uh, nothing's ever perfect. Sure. And the um, irrigation um, technique is, you say, in ground? How does that work? Well, the, you know, they used to put aluminum pipes on top of the ground. They pump out a pond mm-hmm. and have a sprinkler that sprinkles. But it's much more efficient to bury these poly pipes uh, underneath the ground and have, uh, have set stations. There's a lot of labor involved in putting pipe out and you know traveling on the berries and uh, you know so having having that all in ground with uh, you just can turn a switch and and the berries are irrigated there are some systems uh, in, on the blueberry barrens Wyman's has a frost control uh, they put that in after they lost one year they lost about 80 percent of their their far, uh, blueberries to mm. frost mm. Um, not so much frost control now but really it's uh, added water for you know to, to as an insurance policy to keep the plants uh, uh, enough water for optimal growth mm. and then then in terms of weed control um, um, you used to burn um, yep. and now it's more mechanical um, well it, both, uh, uh, both. Yeah. Uh, we have mechanical and certainly chemical mechanical uh, pruning uh, above above the plants and uh, we also have um, in an organic sense we have the elemental sulfur now blueberries are an acid loving plant they're mm-hmm. ericaceous plants like azaleas and rhododendrons and so they really do well at a low pH so we bring that pH down to four with sulfur, and most weeds don't like it that low. Mm-hmm. They can't compete. In fact, so they really can't get the nutrients out of the soil at a low pH. They're mm-hmm. unavailable. But with a mycorrhizal association blueberries, they can't. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing is we're shifting the advantage, a cultural advantage to the blueberries. And this has been a, a really great uh, cultural tool for the organic growers. It gives them a way to suppress something like grasses. I mm-hmm. mean, you can, you know, you mow your lawn all the time. So there's really no good way to control grasses before that without the the use of sulfur. Um, so it does take, uh, it, it does take, uh, 
consistent management to, to keep the weeds back and uh, you know, that cutting or, or spraying to, to, to do that, to mm. need those inputs. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns. I'm having a conversation this morning with Dave Yarborough, a blueberry specialist from University of Maine Cooperative Extension. And we've got some calls that we'll be making shortly um, with some other uh, folks who can help us with the topic of blueberries for Maine. Uh, Dave, the other um, innovation, I suppose, um, has to do with the harvesting, um, go- moving from um, you know uh, people who are picking berries or raking berries to more mechanical techniques as well. That's correct. Uh, back in the 1970s, actually, a colleague of ours, Gleason Gray, developed the blueberry harvester head, and that blueberry harvester head was picked up by a Canadian company, Bragg Lumber Company, in the 80s, and, and they started producing the machines. And once we, you know, we started our, our production from 20 to 40 to 60 million pounds, there were a lot more berries, mm-hmm. and it was a lot more difficult to get labor. Uh, that was uh, filled in for a while. A, a lot of uh, Mexican laborers or Central Americans came mm-hmm. up, and, and so some of them settled here. We see that, but it, we still needed uh, uh, more labor to, to harvest the berries. Uh, the machines were developed and uh, to, but the, there was another key factor that they had to come in before we could use the machines. That was leveling the land and removing the rocks. Okay. And that that factor uh, enabled the mechanical harvest because before the land was uneven and rocky, you you couldn't really use the machines. So mm. once we got to that point, then we could bring the machines in. The machines were much more efficient. And I might mention the machines are still by migrant laborers, but the migrant laborers are coming down from Canada now, mm-hmm. okay. uh, bringing the machines. They harvest in Maine, and then they bring the machines back up in Canada to harvest there. So we've gone to about 20% uh, 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 mechanical harvesting in the 70s to 80 or 90% mechanical harvesting now. So it's a, just a matter of efficiency and, and cost. Right, and it seems like um, each of these um, innovations, and you can kind of trace that, um, requires greater investment on the part of the, the either the processor or the landowners um, to, to make these things work. That's correct. Uh, you know, the, the initially it was more slash and burn agriculture. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you... You burn the field every four or five years, and you came back and see what you know what you got. But mm-hmm. now it really dec- and, and really the the whole pest management issue. We have an integrated pest management program. We're out monitoring with uh, with sweep nets and sticky traps. Uh, we even have uh, weather stations located throughout the blueberry growing region to look at moisture and temperature conditions to monitor for mummyberry disease. We need to protect the plants mm-hmm. uh, from from this disease. And now uh, with these new tools, we're able to uh, really limit the number of pesticide inputs. And mm-hmm. that, that really reduces the cost mm-hmm. and improves, uh, mm-hmm. improves the quality of the berries. But it does, it, it does take uh, a lot more uh, intelligent management, uh, research-based knowledge to, to grow the crop. Uh, and if you don't make the investments, uh, especially things like pollination, uh, then uh, then you don't get the returns. Mm. We've um, also heard that uh, um, this, the, uh, the, the price of berries has uh, there's a trend there, and you might speak about that before we talk with um, some folks from Maine Coast Heritage Trust who have helped with the transition to organic growing. But just uh, sure, uh, maybe in the past ten years, uh, you know, the price of blueberries has gone to the grower uh, in the field from ninety one cents to twenty seven cents, and, mm. and this really has been uh, not 
just production in Maine, we've only gone from 80 or 90 million to 100 million in that period of time. Mm-hmm. And consistently, we've been producing about 100 million pounds. But uh, both the cultivated blueberries, uh, throughout, which are grown throughout the country, and, and specifically uh, Pacific Northwest, uh, an area like British Columbia, are now producing 170 million pounds mm-hmm. of blueberries, and they're processing 75%. So maybe 10 years ago, there was about uh, 290,000 uh uh, pounds of cultivated blueberries processed. Now there's uh, 3.8 million pounds. Mm. And for our wild crop, we've increased from about 1.8 million pounds to 4 million pounds. So we've got, you know, before we've got where we had uh, 10 years ago, we had 2 million pounds in the, in the processing. Now we've got 8 million pounds out there. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's I mean, 800 million pounds. Uh, Pounds, I should mm-hmm. say. So at the same time, I know that um, c- uh, colleagues both at the university and within the industry um, and elsewhere have been looking at new ways to get people to eat more berries. <laughs> yes, that's, that's true. Uh, a lot of our, our marketing efforts uh, and there's Ethos, uh, their uh, marketing agency uh, employed by the Wild Blueberry Association. And what we're trying to do is get the word out of the certainly the health benefits, but also utilization of berries and, and things instead of muffins, which used to be the number one product. Now smoothies are the number one product. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing uh, the an uh, increase in, and and a lot of people are more health conscious that that want something a uh, healthy healthy drink like a smoothie, and they're and that un- consumes more berries per serving That's that correct. way versus a muffin. Right, muffin. You might have a, a cup of berries and a muffin. And right. so you have a half cup every day. Right. So right. We want people to, uh, to and and I, and I think it, it does take uh, uh, quite a bit because when you go in the supermarket, you see those fresh berries up front. You have to go around the back of the store to find your wild blueberries. Sure. And, uh, right now, they're they're actually getting to be a pretty good deal with the lower prices. Uh, they're more affordable, and they're still just as healthy and good for you as well. Good. Yeah. Well, let's go now to uh, Melissa Lee, joining us by phone. She's a regional steward with Maine Coast Heritage Trust uh, down in the Lubeck, Trescott area. Um, welcome to Talk of the Towns, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Hi, Dave. Hi, Melissa. Tell us a little bit about your um, uh, position, uh, Melissa. What's, what's a regional steward do? And then we'll talk more about blueberries. Well, I've worked for Maine Coast Heritage Trust for 18 years now, and my job has um, morphed and uh, been varied in all that time. But um, the primary responsibilities are taking care of conservation land. So... I have about um, close to 7,000 acres of land that Maine Coast Heritage Trust owns in this area that I manage, and then a number of conservation easements. And um, and those are lands um, owned by others, but um, this notion of an easement um, uh, kind of protects the land, and Maine Coast Heritage Trust has a, a legal obligation to kind of uh, engage in that protection. Right, and an easement has um, can can mean anything in terms of it being a negotiated agreement between the landowner and the the easement holder. So there's not a standard definition for what an easement is. It it's negotiated with the landowner. When did you begin to get interested as an organization, as yourself as a steward, in um, blueberries? Well, um, in about. 2008, we purchased a large property in Trescott and Cutler. It spans the line. And on it were about 80 acres of um, non-organic commercial blueberries. 
So um, as we usually do when we acquire a piece of land, we um, try to figure out what what is there, what are the assets, which assets do, do we want to, you know, maintain and, and um, work on. And um, so the first couple of years, it was managed by the same people who were, um, it was leased by the same people who were leasing it before. Um, and in that time, the the organization talked about how we wanted to manage it ourselves long term and decided to go through the three-year process of transitioning it to organic management. So in that time, we had Dave and others um, come look at the land and talk to us. And um, for I, I spoke with so many people and we had hired an organic blueberry grower and an organic blueberry researcher and um, for me personally it was one one steep learning curve <laughs> but um, we made it through the transition process and um, now we have uh, two leases on the 80 acres one is um, about 70 acres the primary one is 70 acres and we have a 12-year lease with um, Mark Jacoby and Lisa Mushrall and his family um, live in Cherryfield and are doing just a fabulous job on um, on managing the 70 acres of blueberries. And I understand that Mark was um, part of the, the team that helped write kind of a guide that you um, allow people to um, use um, if they're interested in the transition from um, uh, berries to organic berries. Right. And I, I mean, there were, there was other people, people's input, myself and, and others, um, but it was really Mark writing the, the guide. I sent a link to you. I don't know if you received that, Ron. Yes, Just, we'll, we'll make sure that gets up on our uh, WERU's uh, website as, as well. It's a wonderful document. It's called Organic Wild Blueberry Culture, a Guide to Transitioning and Tending. And it's about what all the different things you need to think about if you're thinking of about transitioning to organic management, because there are a lot of different aspects. Um, obviously the plant is the same and the needs of the plant are the same, but the fields look different um, and the, the harvesting has some, some different aspects to it because there are more weeds. There are, you know, it's, it's more of an ecosystem than a monocrop. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a different kind of field. But um, last year after... Uh, let's see, after three years of post-transition, so three years after organic, which is six years after it was last sprayed, um, Mark commented that he feels like the fields are getting back into a balance, and they look pretty fabulous this year. We we could use a little rain, but um, they look pretty fabulous. And where do your berries go? What what are your markets? Well, uh, uh, they are leased. So Maine Coast Heritage Trust really just stepped back, and it's, it's up to Mark and his family. But um, they do, um, oh, I don't know what percentage, uh, 10% maybe end up um, being sold as fresh berries. And then I believe 
most of the frozen ones, which is the other large, mm-hmm. larger percentage, I believe they go to Merrill's. Okay. And and um, what's your sense of the kind of public reaction to Maine Coast Heritage Trust and, um, you know, the, your work as a steward um, getting involved in this way and, and kind of helping demonstrate um, the possibility of transition? I think there's been a lot of really good feedback and a lot of interest. Um, people uh, get in touch with Maine Coast Heritage Trust as well as um, Down East Coastal Conservancy and... Um, the Downey Salmon Federation, about, um, you know, how do I transition and I want to protect the water source that's running through my land, um, so what do I do to do that? Um, Downey Salmon Federation in particular is, is, you know, particularly concerned um, and working hard on uh, creating buffers of no spray along the water courses. Right, because they're they they're both landowners as a as a uh, land trust, but also um, trying to to uh, encourage um, return of, of salmon and, and other species. Right. Yeah. Yep. W- if you were to to sum up in one sentence what you think the biggest lessons that you've learned are, so that listeners who might be um, interested in this process of, of transitioning to organic, what what's the biggest lesson you think you've learned? Um, I think it would be not to expect the fields to look the way you see them when you're driving along the road. Mm. Um, that it's, you know, both are, both are, um, are, are great ways to raise blueberries, but they don't look the same. And what's the, what, how would you characterize that difference? What, what would you see if you're visiting your fields that you wouldn't see on the more uh, traditional commercial um, route? You would see goldenrod, you would see St. John's wort, you would see um, other flowering plants, um, which is great for the pollinators so that it's, the pollination possibilities are there through the, through the whole season, mm-hmm. not just when the blueberries need to be pollinated. You would see, you would see what looks more like a field. Uh-huh. Certainly there's, it's primarily blueberries, but... It's, it's more of an ecosystem. Uh-huh. Um, and I guess I would say um, it was a, a leap of faith at first. In fact, we were told that 10 acres is about the limit for, for doing organic management. So at, at 70 acres, it was a leap of faith. And I would, I would say to people, go for it, uh-huh. that it's been a really positive thing. Great. Melissa, thanks so much for being with us, and um, good luck with with, uh, the operation and and your leasing process. Thanks very much. Okay. Melissa Lee, um, who is a a steward with Maine Coast Heritage Trust down in Lubeck, Maine, and uh, um, we're talking about blueberries here in Maine. I would want to remind uh, listeners that they're tuned to uh, Talk of the Towns on WERU, and WERU itself is a very special um, kind of organization. We depend on your support um, uh, through the year to help us um, maintain this radio service, and we would very much welcome your pledge uh, by calling 1-800-643-6273. Here's a comment from Kathy and Waldo. She's so glad that we have information and public affairs programs like Talk of the Towns, and uh, she really likes uh, alternative radio, Democracy Now!, and call-ins like Talk of the Towns and the other programs. So if you support that kind of radio, 
um, here at the local level, give us a call at 1-800-643-6273. I believe we have um, another um, guest here on Talk of the Towns as we talk about blueberries. Um, No, he's not there. Okay, he's not answering. He's out in his field. So this is a a grower who um, we knew might not be available to us. So we'll continue on, and perhaps we'll get uh, Teresa Gaffney on the phone uh, from Highland Organics in Stockton Springs. Dave, any? This is Dave Yarborough, who's here in the studio. Any any other um, comments about Melissa's story in terms of of that process that that you helped um, help them with at the beginning? Well, uh, there is certainly a demand for organic berries, mm-hmm. and there's certainly with the price differential now. Uh, Merrill's blueberries had given a dollar sixty for organic blueberries versus 27 cents for mm-hmm. the commercial freezer. So um, it, it does take, a, it, it is a process. Mm-hmm. Uh, let people know that, uh, and the fields, uh, I, I think, will look different, uh, certainly. Uh, but uh, it, it's it's a process that you have to plan for. We've we found with the, uh, the additional sulfur uh, for organic fields or, or even conventional fields to reduce that weed competition. It takes about three years for that uh, to get it worked its way into the soil mm-hmm. and reduce the pH. So when they're transitioning, uh, they really need to make that upfront investment right. uh, when they when they start. And and uh, they really have uh, an incredible advantage uh, uh, in in producing blueberries where they're starting uh, with clean fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's much, much more difficult if you started when all the weeds were there. So just maintaining that weed management is really the key, and, and they've been working at that. Uh, certainly if they're still getting good yields on the fields, they're, they're putting some effort into that. Sure. Yep. So it sounds like it's, a, it's, it's not a short-term uh, proposition. It's a long-term. It's three years to move from conventional to organic just well, because that's of the certification a, process. That's a USDA rule right. for organic uh, certification, yes. And then the other things, as you mentioned, they have to maintain, even that while they're not getting berries necessarily. Um, Correct. They, they still have to maintain that. I guess they could still harvest the berries, but they would be sold as conventional berries in that three-year period. Is that how yes, it works? Yes, and, and we do have that two-year crop cycle. So yeah. that's really only one crop. Okay. So yeah. every, every other year, if you started... Uh, you know, you started after you prune, you'd have one crop that's not organic, and then the second crop would be organic. Okay. So it's not really, and it, it, it is in the long in terms of uh, planning. You do have to get certified up front, sure, and uh, you have to make that commitment yep. and uh, to do that. But that's not different than any other agricultural venture. Um, you don't start to, to have a lot of uh, productivity in your first couple of years um, in in any kind of agricultural venture. Well, that's true, but you're taking a, com- a conventional field that does have high productivity and, and transitioning right. to or- organic. You're just changing the methods you're using and changing the materials that are allowed in, in that field. And we found that, uh, you know, really over time, the, the yields are lower, uh, but uh, the prices are higher. Sure. So if you look at the bottom line, uh, organic people, organic pr- uh, processors are doing very well. And if, if you sell fresh market, uh, you know, you go into markets like Bar Harbor, you can get $4. Uh, sure. Uh, for a quart on, right. on your blueberries. So. Well, let's t- talk with someone who um, um, has done um, more than just um, harvest berries, but is looking at other products. We're so happy to have Teresa Gaffney back with us. Um, Teresa is um, owner of Highland Organics in Stockton Springs. Welcome back to Talk of the Towns, Teresa. Hi, Ron. It's nice to be back. It's great to have you back. Um, tell us about um, your operation, how you got started, and, and then we'll talk about some of the, the ways in which you're using berries um, that people might be interested in. 
sure. Um, I started um, as a blueberry farmer in 1999 when I married my husband Tom. Um, he had a or he had a blueberry farm out here in Stockton Springs, and um, we started transitioning the farm right away um, and became um, Mafka certified. And we have been certified consecutively since 2002. Um, and you know, we did the fresh berries, we did the fresh and frozen wholesale markets, inviting people to come to the farm and getting to know who we were. So that's how we started um, our business. But in 2004, I did a little high school chemistry class project. And in that project, which wasn't supposed to amount to anything, we learned that the blueberry leaves actually have more antioxidants or anthocyanins than the blueberry fruit. So that set me on another course. Um, where I applied for three main technology seed grants totaling 21500 for the research and development of a whole plant, wild main blueberry tea, where we use the fruit and the leaves of the wild main blueberry plant to make a tea. Um, and we went to Common Grounds Fair, gosh, I think it was uh, 2009 with our little product. And at the end of that weekend at Common Ground Fair, I went, okay, this is what I need to do with my life. <laughs> That's great. So that, so that has really just set us on a course for a whole new, um, a whole new venture as we um, continue to, be- to develop the blueberry tea product. Um, what has also come from that is we make um, an organic wild main blueberry powder, <clears throat> blueberry chips, blueberry sprinkles and wow it's i'm barely able to keep up with the demand um so what you've done is really um uh, changed um how you're going to um get a product to market um versus um either selling um locally or selling to someone who freezes your product and then resells it you're taking control of all of the production and then getting absolutely. out there so absolutely so your work uh, your markets are virtually anywhere somebody can be on the internet and find your your website absolutely we have a we've been doing an online uh, web business for um over 10 years and our website is a taste of just to put a plug in there. But um, we we not only do the online sales, but we are involved in five different farmers markets in the area. I also have wholesale accounts, um, and we have a farm store here in Stockton Springs. So we've been yeah we've been trying, and we ship internationally um, our products. I have faithful buyers from New Zealand and Australia and um, a wholesale account out in Australia as well for our blueberry powders. So it's been pretty exciting to do something other than just blueberry jam, blueberry pie, which there are wonderful people out there who do great products with those as far as the value added. But, um, and there's, you know, as far as the fresh and frozen, there's a lot of folks out there doing fresh and frozen organic berries, but it's nice to, be a part of something brand new. So, and and tell us about the your production on on your your farm. Um, what are some of the challenges? What are the, some of the things that you've learned um, as you and Tom um, actually grow the berries? Sure. Well, right now I can't grow enough, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can't even get enough organic blueberries to be able to make our value added product. So that's one of the challenges that I'm finding this year. It's less than the bumper crop that we normally see. 
Um, and I'm, I'm assuming it's, you know, a variety of things that are going on in the organic uh, fields um, that we around us. Well, not, not only, I, I think Dave said, it's not just the organic fields that are having a, a kind of a downward trend in production. Exactly. Right. It, it, it was a hard spring <laughs> for everybody um, and winter. And, you know, we, we definitely had some challenges where there was not enough snow cover uh, to protect the fields um, when those cold winds would come across. So there was definitely some winter kill. Um, but, you know, it it is it is part of farming and and Mm. that's the one thing I've learned about um, doing this is that you gotta, you gotta roll with it. Every year is different. And um, so our biggest challenge is having enough organic fruit to make our value added products. That's kind of the challenge that I'm in right now. And so Um, are you buying from other organic growers? Is that how you're trying to expand your supply? I will be this year, definitely. Uh-huh. Without okay. a doubt, I will be buying fruit from other uh, small main growers, uh-huh. yeah. And, so, and you've gotten good support um, through these uh, main technology grants and, and other sources um, to help you get started. Absolutely. In fact, we just finished up our fourth um, MTIC grant. Um, it was the viability of scaling up an organic wild main blueberry leaf harvest for the small main organic growers. And um, I've got people from Australia and Spain considering leaves from us um, for products that they're making. So, um, yeah, very exciting stuff that's happening with us and and, and for the small um, organic industry. We're really looking forward to bringing some new products to the market on that level. And I understand our colleague Rich Kurzbergen is helping um, organize a field day um, at the end of <laughs> August for on your operation? Absolutely. We are going to have um, an open, uh, the annual meeting here for the Walden County um, Extension Association and uh, we'd love to have as many people come out and join us and see what we do and learn. It would be a, it'll be a great event. So. That's, that's um, August 30th, what time? From 5.30 to 7.30, right here in Stockton Springs on our farm. Great. Well, Teresa, thanks so much for being with us and helping us see the the big picture in terms of uh, the the blueberry industry here in Maine and your um, important part of that. Well, thank you very much for having me, Ron. And hi, Dave. I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to say hi to you. (laughs) We'll see you around. Thank you very much. Teresa Gaffney, owner of Highland Organics in Stockton Spring, along with her um, husband growing um, organic berries and finding new markets for those. Um, We're going to open up our phone line, so um, if you'd like to participate, perhaps you've got a question for our guest, Dave Yarborough, um, or perhaps you've got some experience with either growing or using blueberries, uh, toll-free, 186. 6625-9378. Please give us a call and participate as we talk about um, Maine and blueberries. Uh, Dave, anything you'd want to add to that conversation where we, you know, in terms of uh, Teresa's journey and Teresa and Tom as, as they've grown berries? Well, I think uh, Teresa's been very innovative in, in new product development, and I think that's a key really to our future is uh, more products uh, mm. utilization. If you look at, uh, I mean, there are there, other things out there, even dog biscuits that they're using with conventional blueberries. And uh, I, I think uh, we've got a really an excellent product, mm-hmm. uh, health profile and the flavor 
there's a lot more places that wild blueberries can mm-hmm. go. We just need so that them. innovation comes when one, as Teresa said, you've got enough berries, and sometimes it, there's a there's a, a a dance there. Sometimes you've got too many berries, you need to find products, and as she's finding now, she's got products, and she's she's struggling a little bit to find the berries. Well, even with the conventional industry, it was that yeah. way. When we yeah. had 20 million pounds, sure. we didn't really have the product for for retail, mm-hmm. and uh, now we're at a point where uh, that I, I think that uh, larger supply drives the innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And also, uh, you know, having the price drive down is, is not good for the producer, mm-hmm. uh, but it is good for offering a product that uh, at, at a lower price. And then and that gets more consumers. So that, that uh, to try to rebalance that supply and demand uh, is important. Let's take a call from Kevin in Ellsworth. Go ahead. You're on Talk of the Towns this morning. Thank you for uh, taking my question. Uh, Obviously, this is a wonderful product in many ways, health-wise, but there were uh, earlier concerns, and I'm talking a long time ago, some were using uh, malathion or something like that uh, as a means of controlling the uh, pest. How much is that practice still used in the system uh, today? So the question is, um, how are pests controlled today? Is that right? Yes, they were using some malathion and or relating it to groundwater, especially okay. in the uh, uh, down, down area here. Great. We'll see if we can get a response from our guest, Dave Yarborough. Back in the 1970s, it, w- it wasn't actually. It was guthion, uh, which is a little bit more toxic material. Uh, that material has been phased out completely. Uh, malathion is a, uh, an insecticide still used in the cultivated blueberry industry to control the maggot. It has a fairly short residual, uh, so they can spray one day and pick the next. We currently do not use that material in Maine. We do monitor for the fruit fly because uh, it, it is a pest and, and it is regulated uh, so that we do have to uh, put out uh, yellow sticky traps, which are uh, very similar to the apple maggot uh, traps that go out. And we do monitor levels, So, but if we do get an infestation, uh, then there are other uh, many other different materials that don't have the same uh, toxic profile as, as the myelothion, it's not a, it, which is a... a cholinesterase inhibitor. They have different modes of actions that work on insects that are much uh, softer and safer, safer for bees, safer for people, and yet still are able to control the insects. So uh, I I think uh, the growers since the 1970s have practiced IPM. Uh, We've got uh, IPM being integrated pest management. And, And that means, you know, making smart choices, not spraying when you don't have to spray. Or, or we've even found uh, uh, understanding the biology of this particular fruit fly. It comes in, uh, it, it overwinters in the soil as a pupae. It comes in from uh, fields uh, that were pruned the, the previous year. And so what we're able to do is uh, we're able to set up traps along the border. If we detect them, we're only able to spray the border. We keep the, we keep the flies out of the field so mm. we can reduce any kind of inputs uh, up to 80%. And uh, or if we have just one small area of the field, uh, we could just spray uh, that particular area. So there, are, there, there's a science and innovations to uh, really minimize uh, those inputs. But uh, maggots in the fruit uh, don't sell well. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. We have Nur on the line from Swan's Island. Yeah, it's Ira. Ira, I'm sorry, I'm I couldn't a, read that. Yes, thank you, Ira. 
I'm a very small uh, maple producer, uh-huh. uh, and uh, I was thinking, why can't they? Uh, why can't we combine the two products that both have antioxidant qualities, and make sort of a soda that would sell all that? Uh, uh, see what you think about it. I know Eli's has a really great blueberry soda, but what about a soda that was um, uh, had uh, uh, both maple syrup from Maine and blueberries? Anyway. Great, and and um, I'll I'll get Dave to talk about um, how Cooperative Extension helps with those kinds of ideas um, with yeah. your colleague Jason Bolton, and and that's a great great idea. It, it is a great idea, and and developing the product is, is one stage, uh, and we have a food development lab at the university, and and food scientists that can help that. But you know, it, it's just. Part of it is finding the entrepreneurs and the venture capitalists to to uh, put the money into doing something like that, which is uh, which is an extra challenge. Uh, but good ideas uh, don't go unrewarded, and perhaps uh, some venture capitalists out there will hear your story and follow up on it. Great, thanks, Frank. Thanks for your Carl Ira. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. We've got time for a few more phone calls if you'd like to participate as we talk about blueberries in Maine. Uh, Dave, um, I know that there's um, a, a fair amount of folks who want to grow blueberries at home. Um, they want to cr- um, bring in some sod and and uh, tell us a little bit about what their consideration should be. How, how should they think about that? Well, y- y- the question really is, uh, do you want to grow the low bush or the high bush type? Mm-hmm. Okay. And a lot of people uh, have an interest in, and they, they call us uh, asking for how can they grow the, the, the low bush type blueberry in Maine. And in in uh, in the fields themselves, we call them wild blueberries because there's a diversity of clones. They're not planted, uh, but you can uh, transplant the sod. Uh, you can also propagate the plants by tissue culture or by seed. So there's several methods to get the plants in the field. But the problem is, is the plants aren't very competitive and they're very slow growing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, everybody there's such a great berry. Everybody in the world would be growing wild blueberries. Sure, so sure. That, that's the issue. Uh, so you know, for you really for your backyard, for your fresh market, um, cultivated blueberries, hardwood cutting. You stick it in the ground three to five years. You have a big bush, lots of berries, and you fight off the birds uh, <laughs> to try to get your share of them. But right. uh, so uh, so it is possible, but it's. Uh, Establishing fields aren't practical, which is a good thing for us. Well, I, 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 my experience is not necessarily fields, but just as a backyard crop for home consumption. Um, so these are relatively small plots in a in a in a yard. Um, some people are looking at that. Yes, uh, well, I get a lot of people. They have uh, if uh, uh, sewer systems or uh, leach fields they're putting yep. in. They want to put berries on it, and yep. and they are shallow rooted. Yeah. And they uh, what you need is a sandy soil, full sunlight. And um, a source of plants, uh, the, the the latter being the, the most difficult to obtain. Okay. There are a few sources out there that uh, have open pollinated uh, low bush types that are selected and they propagate. We had one nursery in western Maine, but, uh, you know, the demand isn't uh, large enough or consistent enough for anybody really to supply uh, a large supply. There's one farm, Suncase Farm, that actually harvests blueberry sod with a a sod harvester. Mm -hmm. And they sell the sods in in clumps. And then they uh, add uh, peat moss and sand back in between. It's about a foot foot wide. And within uh, five or six years, they fill back in. So they, they do have a... A sustainable method of harvesting uh, plants uh, that instead of just harvesting a field. Mm-hmm. Uh, Let's take one more call from Lawton in Penobscot. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. I had a question about bumblebees. I'm a small organic farmer in Penobscot, and I got a contract on a couple of small acres of fields. 
I used uh, bumblebees this year, but I, I got them from Michigan, mm-hmm. and they were somewhat stressed when they got here. And I was just wondering if anybody locally was doing anything selling, you know, bumblebees to farmers. I mean, I know about using other plants to help, you know, bring in. Yeah. And the other question was, you just talked about, I understood 70% of the plant was underground. So those roots, are, did they run lateral? Great. D- Dave? Two questions. Uh, one being uh, culprit in, in uh, Detroit. Is it, they're really the only place that, that propagates the, and sells them commercially. In Maine, uh, we look at trying to uh, look at pollinated plantings to encourage our native bees, which are very similar to the ones you bring in. As far as the plant goes, uh, yeah, about two-thirds of the plant is actually underneath the ground. It's an underground stem called a rhizome. It's like the bowl of an apple tree. And it's a storage organ, and, and that's why we can prune the plant to back to the ground every other year. And so we're only taking about a third of the growth. And so those new shoots are, are much more productive uh, than if you just leave the plants unpruned. Over time, your production would decrease by half and, and continue to dwindle as that plant gets uh, older and older. So the pruning process is important, and it's made possible because the rhizomes are, are, are such a, a large part, two-thirds of the biomass. Lawton, how did you get into, into growing berries? Uh always had an interest had raked other people's fields and i'm a small organic farmer and so i picked up a couple fields you know uh-huh. they're just a few acres apiece but i really appreciate appreciate your show you you give an old farmer help uh hope <laughs> hope and help <laughs> well that's that's wonderful to hear and of course um, you can call your local extension um office um probably that's in the town of uh, ellsworth and uh then you could get through to dave and his colleagues up at the university so uh, thanks for your call this morning thank you um, we're talking about blueberries. We um, probably are going to be wrapping up relatively soon. Uh, Dave, as you look ahead um, to the blueberry industry, we've talked about a lot of different things. Are there are trends that we haven't talked about, things that uh, are on the horizon for you and your colleagues? Well, um, uh, certainly uh, we've uh, developed a lot more management tools uh, mm-hmm. for the, uh, the wild blueberry grower. Uh, there's one called a bee mapper. Or which look at uh, resources uh, on, a, on a landscape basis of, uh, you know, what kind of type of habitat you have. And you can determine and go in, uh, locate your field on there and determine what the potential native pollinator forces are. Mm. That, so you can adjust your, your bee populations and, and adjust the inputs that you have. We also have um, uh, planting tools now, since it's much more important uh, with the lower prices to be efficient and look at your inputs. Uh, there's a, a program which is actually a blueberry management tool is developed up in Canada uh, that we've adapted uh, for main, uh, main growers. And they can use this tool to determine uh, the effects of uh, changing inputs and break-even costs. Because uh, although people, uh, blueberry growers, love growing blueberries, it is a business. And mm-hmm. in order to stay in business, you have to watch your bottom line. Mm. And these particular tools really help with that, uh, to do that. So that's really the major uh, goal, uh, looking at uh, different levels of inputs, organic, low, medium, high, to get growers to understand what the inputs do. Uh, and to uh, to uh, develop the inputs they need for 
uh, optimizing your returns and stay in business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, we talked briefly about uh, changing climate. Um, how do you imagine a, a climate change uh, kind of regime is going to affect uh, Maine and, and Atlantic Canada? Well, areas? you know, uh, up to this point, uh, you know, uh, climate change and hot wet, uh, and acid rain are actually good for blueberries mm-hmm. uh, sure. in the sense that we have uh, very mild winters now. And that, or in the falls, are much longer. So the plants grow longer. They put more resources into the rhizomes, and uh, potentially, uh, at least in the short term, mm-hmm. right now, mm-hmm. uh, that's a, a positive effect. The negative effects are really the uneven precipitation patterns that we've had. And Teresa you know, mentioned those: the yeah, fact that we didn't have snow, not when, snow, and then we had some real cold weather, and that began to affect the plants. That's correct. Right. Or and right now, the lack of rain. Right. Or lack of right. rain really is is a factor. Maine, in a sense, uh, unlike a lot of the country, has still gotten fairly good rainfall, but mm-hmm. but that trend uh, of like not having. Uh, one of the driest uh, uh, Julys on record and not getting any rain. Right. That, that's really going to affect it. And, and the poor pollination weather, uh, you start out with smaller fruit, and then you limit the water, you're going you're gonna to really limit your crop. So mm-hmm. uh, certainly weather factors, uh, there are plus and minuses. Uh, uh, overall, it, you know, the, the, the long-growing season is, is a positive factor. Uh, the uncertainty and the and mm-hmm. the. the you know, the, the frequency of rainfall is, is another factor, mm-hmm. which is a minus. And what's your favorite way to eat berries? Well, uh, myself, I, I guess I'm old school. I, I still put it in um, muffins and and, um, and uh, pancakes, uh, pan- uh, blueberry pancakes. But my wife uh, takes her, uh, you know, half a cup and puts it in a smoothie in the morning and along with oatmeal and yogurt. And uh, so that's really uh, the healthy way to do it, I guess. Great, uh, great. Well, Dave, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Okay, thank you for having me, Ron. Okay. Appreciate it. Oh, and, and how, do, how do people get in touch with you or your office? Well, you can uh, get me at wildblueberries.maine.edu or call the, your local extension office and uh, they'll put put you in there. The, uh, the website uh, gives lots of good contact information. Great. Yep. We've come to the end of the hour. Be sure to join us from 10 to 11 on the second Friday of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you have comments or suggestions for future topics, please email us at news at weru.org. And tune into our companion program, Coastal Conversations with Natalie Springle of Humane Sea Grant from 10 to 11 on the fourth Friday of each month. This is our fun drive, and please give us a call. Pledge your support for programs like this by calling 1-800-643-6273. Thanks again to our guests in the studio, uh, Dave Yarborough. Thanks for our phone call uh, guests, uh, Teresa Gaffney and Melissa Lee. Thanks to uh, A.B. Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.